So this morning, I'm going to preach three points to you. Um, for those of you taking notes, if you need these, and it really just clearly follows the text that we have here in Hebrews that Tom read, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Um, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider um, how to stir one another up to love and good works. So let us draw near. Um, and, and to do that, to, to hit on the first point, let us draw near, as we're taking into this text, I want to go to a different text. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, um, but it's one of my, it's probably two of my favorite chapters, maybe my two favorite chapters in the Bible, vying with Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 4 and 5. Do we have any Revelation 4 and 5 fans out there? Woot! <laughs> I got one lonely hand. It's like a reed shaking in the wind. Not that confident. Awesome. Um, Revelation 4 and 5, two of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I'm a child of the 80s, as you know, if you've been here long enough. You might be able to tell from some of my grades. Um, MC Hammer was big time, like around the time that Vanilla Ice was big, maybe a little before MC Hammer with his hammer pants doing this across the stage. Um, you can't touch this. That was his big song. And that would be a great title for this, uh, this scene that opens up in Revelation 4. You can't touch this. Okay, all right, let me, let me build a little bit. I'm sure that's never been preached before. How MC Hammer and his hammer pants relate to Revelation 4. It's a scene that opens up in heaven. John has just uh, walked us through, John the author of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, he's just walked us through the seven churches in Tur modern-day Turkey in Asia Minor, and, and there are seven letters that Christ writes through John to each of the churches. You know, hold on, hold fast. I see what you're doing, but you need to work on this. Um, I'm here, I'm waiting for you. Keep on, keep it on. Stay courageous. Um, and you, a lot of times people preach a series on Revelation 2 and 3, and then they'll go on to another book or whatever. Um, but right after that, we get this amazing scene where John says, Behold, I saw the nerve center of the universe. I saw the control room of everything, where everything... The place that, um, where all the levers are pulled and that makes everything in the rest of the universe and on earth happen. I was taken to heaven and I saw the heavenly scene and the door was basically opened for John. And then the scene in Revelation 4 unfolds and he tells us about the heavenlies. And he says, here's what I saw. I saw um, basically God's throne covered in storm with lightning and thunder terrifying to behold. And actually, God is not even seen because he can't be seen by human eyes. And he's surrounded by these terrifying, probably keruvim, these cherubim that are in Isaiah 6 and elsewhere throughout the Bible, these bodyguard, holy, six-winged angels that um, have, uh, one of them's an ox, one of them's a lion, one of them's a man, one of them's an eagle, and they're surrounding the throne and they have six wings, and they're covering the eyes with two, and they're covering the feet with two, because even they can't look at God, and their feet are dirty in the sight of God, even though they're sinless, and they're flying with two, and they're saying, worthy are you. Just as in Isaiah, they said, holy, holy, holy. He's so holy as the Lord God Almighty. They're saying, worthy are you, O God. Worthy are you to receive all praise and glory. And around that, you have these elders that are clothed in complete white with golden crowns, purified, no sin anywhere in sight. God is unseen, untouchable. If anyone tries to get in that doesn't belong there, that can't be there, you're done. You're finished. There's no, I mean, he's impenetrable. Um, 
And it really, that sort of scene, if you're a Jew reading Revelation, and John is very, maybe the most Hebraic of all the New Testament authors, it's, an ex, it's, a, it's a scene straight out of Exodus 19, with, where God comes down, he descends to be with his people, to give them the law in Sinai, east of Egypt, south of the Promised Land, where they're sort of in waiting. And he, he blackens the mountain with his presence, and there's a furious storm of fire and lightning and thunder, and it said, look, if you even just put guards around the mountain, because if anyone approaches in any way that's not according to my exact word, they touch, even touch the mountain, if a beast, if a cow or a goat touches the mountain, they'll die. That's, that's God and his holiness and his power. And all of creation is ringing, so that you sort of have, you have God in the middle, and you have this, the next ring of these of these uh, cherubim, these, these holy angels, and you have the next ring of these holy, purified elders, and then you have the next ring and the next ring of just creation in concentric circles. And this is John saying, okay, this is it. This is, this is what happens here affects what happens on the earth. And then the scene shifts in Revelation 5, the next chapter, and um, he sees God in his right hand of power holding this book, that's perfectly sealed up. And in short, what this book is, is it's God's plan for everything, for, the, for all of creation. His perfect redemptive plan to make everything right. His plan for salvation, his plan for judgment, his plan for getting rid of evil, crushing opposition and sin, his plan for redemption, for making a way for his people to be with him. And, um, And an angel cries out, John hears this in a loud voice, who is worthy in heaven, on earth, under the earth? Who is worthy to open this book with its perfect amount of seals, that's perfectly sealed up? Somebody has to be worthy to open this and to execute God's plan. And there's just, there's just silence. Because there's no one worthy. There's no one worthy to approach God on his own merit. Nobody is worthy to approach God. Can't do it. And so John, what does he do? He starts to weep at the beginning of Revelation 5. He just starts to weep loudly, it says. Because there's no one that is able to unlock this plan of God, to carry it out, to execute it, to set it in motion. And it says, he says that an elder came to me in the middle of my weeping, and he said, weep no more. Behold, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, is able and has conquered and has unlocked the seals and has opened the book and has accomplished everything necessary to the T for God's plan. All of God's plan, he's done it. And then it's, so you're expecting, it's a lion. It's a, it's an, a descendant of King David. The, the Messiah, it's clearly Messianic language. It's the Messiah who's going to come and make all things new, this power figure. And John looks, and what does John see? He sees one standing as a lamb. A lamb, a weak creature that has been sacrificed. He, he was a lamb standing in a position of power, but a lamb, weakness, but also a lion, as if he had been slain, and because he had been slain, but he was no longer slain. And what he does, this powerful, I won't say creature, being, 
the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came in weakness for us. It says that, what does he do? He just walks straight through these concentric circles, these guards, all the way up to the very throne, and he takes the book out of God's hand, and he executes all of it. He does it all. And obviously the central part of that execution is his own execution, the lions being slain for us, for those of us who are guilty, taking our place, being a vicarious, atoning sacrifice, being a substitute for the guilty. And he is conquered. He's standing. He was slain, but he, now he's alive, behold. And, it, and, and John says, as I realized that, and as all creation awoke to this fact that he had done it, that he alone, alone approached the throne and did what no one else could do, everything that was being said about this unapproachable God who is holy now began to be said and more and heaped upon this God who is perfect in power and who became weak for our sakes, this lion lamb, this triune God. And it says, worthy are you, worthy are you. And the praise just kind of explodes out in concentric circles from the beast, from the, from the cherubim, and then from the elders, and then from all of creation, sort of like a shockwave out into all creation. And it's really the rest of Revelation and the rest of history flows out of that fact, that central fact. Um, now, I want to I change the scene a little bit and zoom down to earth briefly and just think about the earth in the same way. Because like I said, what, the way John presents things is that heaven is the reality and what is down here on earth is to be a model of that, is to be a sort of copy of that. Um, it's one of the reasons that in Genesis, when God makes everything, out of the fullness of who he is, he creates, right? And he creates everything, and then he puts man, and he makes man in his own image in the center of all these things. And he says, now be fruitful and multiply. And what? Put my image, fill all of the earth with my image, with my presence. Um, and that's God saying, I want earth to be like heaven, full of my presence. I want earth and heaven to be connected. And what we see in Revelation 4 and 5 is this huge disconnect. And then the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, begins the process and does everything necessary for its completion to bring heaven back to earth, to bring God and man back into peaceful relationship, back into uh, harmony. And so imagine the earth now, like heaven, in sort of concentric rings, and that's the way that sort of the Old Testament is built out when you look at the law and you look at the system of sacrifices. If you think about all the earth, it's, it's, it's the earth. And then you get to this special nation sort of in the middle of the ancient Near East, in the middle of uh, the Middle Eastern cultures, north, south, east, and then the west, of course, is the ocean, but is Israel. You have this holy place. It's sort of the crossroads of the ancient world. Right in the center, you have this holy nation. And then within that holy nation, that's, that's this, it's a place for God's people alone, a little bit more exclusive. You have Jerusalem, the holy city, which is elevated uh, whenever Jerusalem is talked about, it's often talked about as we, we, went, we came down from Jerusalem or we went up to Jerusalem. It's elevated. It's, it's on a mountain. And then the highest, one of the highest points of Jerusalem, even more exclusive, is the Temple Mount, the foundation, the structure on which the temple was built. And on that Temple Mount, you have various rings of exclusivity and holiness within that. You have the grounds 
Um, you have the court of the Gentiles, that the Gentiles can come and kind of get close to that temple, to where that place where God and man meet, that place where heaven comes down to earth, but they, can, they can't go past the court of the Gentiles. Within that, you have the court of the women. You have to be a Jewish woman, one of God's people in the Old Testament, to get in there. And then within that, you have the court of, it's for the men only. And then within that, you have a place that's just for the priests, where the sacrifices are made, where the ablutions and the washings are done. And then within that, you have the temple proper. It's called the holy place, where only the priests can go to keep that lamp lit, to keep that table filled with bread. And within that, the place of utmost exclusivity, the throne of God, as it were, on earth, you have the holy of holies. But most, it's called the most holy place in the Hebrew Bible. And it, it can only be entered into one time every year on the appointed day in the exact way by one priest. And he has a rope tied to him and bells on him so that if he stopped, if the bells stopped tinkling, stop making noise after a while, you know he's done something wrong and he's, he's been slain, he's died because God's holy presence is so thick in that place. Sacrifice, and they can just pull him out on a rope. There's this huge curtain that divides the holy place from the holy of holies and you dare not go in there unless you're that priest, unless you're doing exactly the way God. And you go in there, and there's the Ark of the Covenant with the, with the cherubim, just like we just saw in Revelation 4, or heard about, rather. The cherubim are covering this place where God descends when the, a blood sacrifice is offered on top of the Ark of the Covenant, on top of what's called the mercy seat. God comes down to this mercy seat where innocent blood has been shed, and he dwells with his people. And the the cherubim are covering this seat with their wings, and they're covering their eyes, and the other wings are touching each side of the, um, of the, of the far walls of the Holy of Holies. And um, it's, it's a picture of heaven. It's a picture of God's home. It's to be good. It's to be life-giving. It's to be a place where man and God meet. But the Old Testament shows us that it's just pure, purely, it's terrifying because we can't go there. But to get there, things have to be done exactly according to God's word. And innocent, something innocent has to die in the place of us, the guilty, who can, so that we can come before God and be in his presence. And so back to you can't touch this. I mean, you can't touch this in heaven. You can't touch this on earth. It's the way that things are set up. And that's a very long introduction. Don't worry, the points are pretty short. It's a very long introduction. I felt like I needed to make for Hebrews 10, 19, our first verse. Because what do, we, what do we have at the start of Hebrews 10, 19? We have the word, therefore. And what is that therefore? What's loaded into that therefore? It's a very pregnant therefore. Basically, the entire book of Hebrews, starting from chapter 3 at least, where he starts talking about the Old Testament and the laws and the sacrifices and everything that Moses wrote in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He's saying all that was then was to lead up to what is now, which is God's final word, his perfect word, Jesus Christ, his son, the ultimate sacrifice. He's finished the work. We're complete in him. We have full access to God the Father through him. All that stuff was to point to him, not to stay on, not to look to anymore. Don't go back. Don't try another way. It's here. Therefore, in light of everything that Christ has done, in light of the fact that all those things that got higher and higher and more and more exclusive and more and more impossible to get to God through, Christ is like a laser. He's just bored a hole straight 
through every barrier that God has put between us and him so we won't die. And he's taken us straight into the Holy of Holies. Which is why on the cross when he died and his flesh was torn for us and his blood was shed for us, what happened in that temple, in that place where there was a divider between the holy place where the priests went daily and the holy of holies where they went once a year? What happened to that curtain? It was torn, right? It tore from top to bottom to show that it wasn't some dude. It wasn't a high priest sitting down there tearing it at the exact same time Jesus died. It was showing that Jesus has done something in heaven. On that cross, something was happening. He was presenting a perfect sacrifice before unapproachable, perfect, holy God. And the sign of that fact that in this model on earth of God's home, uh, as a sign that there is, there is, um, there is coherence, there is a connection between what happens in heaven and what happens on earth. As soon as Christ's flesh was torn on that cross for us, that barrier to God here in the temple was just torn in half. Um, and the author of Hebrews is saying here, we therefore now, Jews, non-Jews, anyone at all who will look to Christ have full access to the impenetrable barriers that separated us from a holy God because of our sin. Through his flesh, the real curtain, that the temple curtain was just a shadow of. We now have full access to God through Jesus Christ, and therefore, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. You know, so Jesus, um, he takes us straight in to a place that you dare not touch or approach, right into the heart of God and makes us and makes us at home in God's home. And he is the sacrifice. The the first part of actually we 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 set it together. Um Hebrews 10:11 through 14. I won't read it. But the first part of Hebrews 10 says that Jesus is the sacrifice that's offered by the priest. All those Old Testament sacrifices, all those animals, all that blood that was shed under the law, under the cultic system in the Old Testament. Those didn't take away, Hebrews tells us in other books, a single sin. None of the animal sacrifices did anything. Jesus is the effective sacrifice that all those things were pointing to. They were just getting us ready. Um, so he is the sacrifice offered by the priest, and he is that priest. If you look in verse 21 of our text, it says, And since we have a great high priest, he is the only one that was qualified. He's the only one that was worthy to take the scroll, to approach God, to go into the holy place on his own merit. And now he says, In me, anyone can come. Nobody can come not in me. Any other way that you want to go up the mountain to try to get to God, you can't do it. No law keeping, no other religious system, no amount of cleaning yourself up, no amount of trying to live a good life in your own strength. None of that, none of that is even close to acceptable. You can't touch this. But Jesus was fully able, and he took the hit that he didn't deserve, our hit, and was torn for it. And through that cross made a way for us in his merit and in his life and in his death to be with God, to go to God. So he's the priest that offers himself the sacrifice and he is the temple. The place where, what's the temple? It's the place where God and man meet in peace and man's not destroyed. Sinful man is not destroyed through the sacrifice of an innocent victim, Jesus Christ. So he's the priest, he's the sacrifice, he's the temple. And then the beginning of this chapter, Hebrews 10 says, 
all that stuff that points us to Jesus, all that temple stuff and sacrifice stuff and priest stuff and law stuff, all those things that the Jews have been trying to keep for centuries, it's, he says, the author of Hebrews says, guess what? This is a brain buster. He says, it's just, it was just shadows. Jesus is the reality that casts the shadow. So the Old Testament is a copy of Jesus. It says the Old Testament, all that stuff in the law and, and, the, and the sacrifices and all that stuff, it was just copies of the real thing. He's the reason. The New Testament, get this around, try to get your head around this in your heart. The New Testament, the author is telling us, is the reason the Old Testament exists, not vice versa. Jesus is the person for which the shadow exists. All that stuff was written and played out in history and choreographed and a people were made for God and a law was given because Jesus is and at the perfect time he would be sent by the Father to be the fulfillment of all that stuff. So you're hanging on, people, in Hebrews that I'm writing to, to the shadow. If you're still trying to keep the law and get right with God in your own way and do the sacrifices and come to the actual physical temple, no! Jesus is the reason that he's the person that's casting the shadow. It's like trying to talk to a shadow, trying to get a shadow to help you, trying to get a shadow to unlock you from a prison to save you from some dire circumstance. A shadow can do nothing. A shadow has no power. The law has zero power. The sacrifices had zero power, nothing. The whole point of the shadow was the person. They point us, they prefigure the real thing. And he's here now. And he's done everything as Chris was singing about, as we were singing about together. Um, he's done everything necessary for us to be in perfect communion with God. The shadow has no power. The person is the one that has all the power. The shadow can't save. The person can. The Old Testament sacrifices and laws took away no sins. Jesus takes away every sin. The Old Testament law did no effective good. No change can be made by that law. Only harm. It was good, but it actually made our badness in us worse. Jesus Christ comes, pays for our sins, and then gives us new hearts through his Holy Spirit. Gives us his desires to love the Father. Brings us into the family. Makes us a gathering. There's the title. There's the reason for the sermon, right? I'm getting there. Makes us a gathering of saints clothed in white, crowned with gold, through no good of our own, who are made of people because of one thing, Jesus Christ and his torn flesh for us. He makes a way to the Father. It's enough. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Therefore, so I preach the first word of your text. And I preach the first point. Okay? I preach the first point. Let us draw near. It's the first exhortation. To God, and like Chris said, therefore, to one another. If God accepts us through the person of Christ, then guess what, friend? I can kind of let it all hang out. Not luxuriating in my sin, but saying, I'm a sinner. Christ has paid for it. I'm on my way. Here's who I am. I'm not trying to be somebody I'm not. Here's who you are. I can love you where you are. I see where you're headed. Let's be real. Let's love each other. Let's be the family that we are. Let's live into that. Let's lean into that. Okay? I'm closer to some of you that are first-time visitors. If you're new creations in Christ, if you're hiding in him, if you've trusted in him, if you're in the presence of the Father through his work and his sacrifice and his intercession for you now before the Father, I'm closer to you existentially than I am to some of my aunts and uncles that I've known all my life, that were there when I was born, that are dead in their sins and trespasses. That's a fact. Let's live into that. And let's let the world see that and go, weird, 
different ooh, or hmm, maybe I need to go check that out. That, that's getting my attention. Man, I think so often we can think that we need to be in the world and just like it. We, don't, we didn't say that, but we so want to be in the world. Salt is in the world. Light is in the world. We have to be. That's where God has called us, like Chris was saying again. Or like Tom was saying, rather. Um, but we think, okay, I need to blend in. No, we need to be in the middle of things, and our lives should be so lined up with the reality of who Christ is and what he's done for us that we should just, people should just be going, okay, you're in the midst of us, but you're very different. You're not calling attention to yourself, but... Why are you living this way? What is coming out of you? And asking questions and provoking and drawing in and repelling, yes. That's what Christ does. Some people run away from him in horror. Some people crucify. We all have. We've all had a part in that. But some are drawn. So let us draw near. Secondly, much shorter, let us hold fast. Really just one point here. Let us hold fast. And if you have your Bibles, it might, if you can conjure it up, guys, might be on the screen because Chris actually read from it in the liturgy earlier. But Hebrews 4 14 and 16, it's okay if, if you can't turn there or don't have it up on the screen. But let us hold fast, he says in verse 23, in light of everything that I've just preached, in light of everything I've just read. And, and Hebrews was probably a sermon as well as a letter. It was probably a sermonic epistle. So this is a, a very preached, preachy book. Let us hold fast, therefore, as we draw near. Hebrews 4, 14 and 16, through 16, rather, says this, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast. There it is again. A lot of these points he just makes over and over again in his epistles. So that's one of the reasons you can tell it's probably a sermon. <laughs> just saying the same thing over and over again, pounding that nail in. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, there it is, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, there are two types of people that we can go to when we're in crisis, basically. The first type of person is the type of person who is unholy. We'll just caric we'll caricature them for, um, just for e the sake of ease. They're unholy. Okay, they live, they're living in sin, they know it, maybe they don't know it, but they understand, man. They understand why you're in the pit. Um, they understand, and you don't have to be in the pit because you're living in sin, but man, let's just say you're in the mire, you're living in disobedience, whatever. They're not going to judge you. They're the guy that's going to grab a beer next to you at the bar and just say, hey, bro, yeah, I understand exactly what you're going through, I'm right there too. They're not going to judge you, and that's great. There's another type of person we can go to, the holy type of person, um, the person that's, that's walking in obedience to God's commands, um, a person that can, they can help you seemingly. They can say, here's a way out, but oftentimes they're not going to get in the hole with you and they're not quite sure why you're there. Um, and they might just judge you. So, like I said, the problem is with both of them, the first type, um, you can usually relate to them and they to you, but you can't necessarily trust them that they're going to be of any help in the end to get you out of where you are. Um, the second type, you can perhaps trust to save and to help and to pull you out, but they really can't relate to where you are. And the fact is, this text is telling us that as our high priest, because he was tempted, yet without sin, Christ is both of those things. Um, he's perfectly holy and powerful. No sin at all. 
We can completely trust him, and he has all power to rescue us. And yet, he was tempted in every way. In fact, nobody was tempted as much as Christ was tempted, because Christ held out. None of us have ever held out forever. We've all given in. Every day, we give in to one thing or another. And as it's proverbially said, you know, it's only the oak tree, the reed that bends with the power of the wind, does not feel the power of the wind. Just a little bit, whoo, and it bends. That's me a lot of times. Every day in some capacity. Temptation, bye-bye. Just lay down. Jesus is the oak who stands, is never uprooted, and he, that oak feels the, all the force that the wind drives at it because it will not yield. Jesus never, ever yielded. He feels temptation and its power more than we do. And he existentially feels sin and its misery and its darkness and its weight and its horror and all the satanic oppression that comes along with it more than any of us will because he became our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became our sin for us. He, I don't even know what that means. I don't know how he did it. Only God could have. Only man needed to. The God-man did. So he understands. He can be gentle, Hebrews 5, 1 through 3, the author goes on to say, therefore, with those who are being tempted, with those who are sinning. He can be gentle with you, uh, with the wayward, and with me. And, um, and he's able to save us and to pull us out. So tempted in everything, he can completely relate, and yet he's without sin. He can totally help rescue and save. Notice that, back to verse 23, um, let us hold fast. Okay, so let us draw near, but point two, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It doesn't say, let us hold fast because we can do it. It doesn't say that. It says, let us hold fast because of everything I've just written to you for the past 10 chapters about Jesus, who he is, how he's the fulfillment, he's the person, the shadow can't help you, he can, he has, he's done it all, he's bored a hole all the way to the Father. Hide in him, trust in him, look to him, think on him, remind each other while still today about him, feed on him. Know his word, spend time in his word, spend time in prayer, abide in what you are in him, holy, perfect, righteous. Let that change you. Let that secure you. Remind each other of these things. He is what we lean on as we, um, as we hold fast. And as we do that, um, that anchors us and allows us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So that's um, drawing near. Let us draw near, guys, because of what he's done. Let us hold fast to him together with one another, the group uh, it's, it's something we've been called to do in community, not off on our own. And then finally, let us consider how to stir one another up. Um, notice he says here, let us consider. So not like, hey, it's going to happen easily. You won't even have to think about it. No, he says, let us consider in light of all this, all, all that Jesus has done, and then can think about really intentionally how to stir each other up to love and good works. Because that's not going to be our default. It needs to be something we're all spurring one another on to do, thinking about, um, being creative about, looking to serve. You know, um, I'm probably, even though I love my wife and we're bound in covenant, thank God, to one another, because sometimes things get hard, harder for her than for me, I'm sure, because I'm a jerk. But, um, oh, sorry about that. But, uh, 
but we're bound in covenant. That's our safety net. And, um, but e- even though I love her and she loves me, I'm not, probably just, a lot of times I'm just not going to, I'm just not going to, love isn't just going to happen spontaneously. I have to think about it. I have to be intentional about it. It doesn't make it any less real or good. Um, and in fact, that obedience and that intentionality creates the feeling oftentimes, as C.S. Lewis, I have to at least mention him if I'm not going to quote him, as C.S. Lewis talks about so well, that obedience to doing what we know we've been called to do and set free to do often creates the feeling and creates the desire, and then it's a, um, and then it's a self-perpetuating thing. Okay, so, and then also, let us his language, consider what, how to stir one another up. In other words, our lives are sort of like all the stuff that, all the love and all the good works and all the things that we know we've been called to, they, they, they tend to be like sediment that settles at the bottom of a river. Or like if you pour a packet of crystal light or, I don't know, whatever, Kool-Aid or something, into a drink of water, into a glass of water, it just kind of settles. And what it, it's only until you stir it up that it starts to mix and that it actually does what it, it's in there, but it takes stirring up. It, and he's saying, look, this is a group thing. I'm not just, he has saved you as a person, individually, paid the price for your salvation, but he's brought you into this body. He's made you his own bride. And he's called us to live this life together, as Crispus sang, and to figure out what that looks like by, by working this thing out in our Sunday gatherings, throughout the week as we share life in our Friday morning men's book club and Tuesday night women's Bible study and in our parish gatherings and hey, come over, I'm doing this, I'm going to the grocery store, come jump in the pool, whatever it is, um, I want you to meet my neighbor, we're having them over tonight, why don't you come too? Sharing life together, bringing our neighbors into this, speaking the truth and love to one another, not just, hey, yeah, nice, that's cool, um, I, see, I see that you're doing something that you ought not to be doing or that I ought to challenge you on, but I'm, I'm not going to say anything. That's not, that's not stirring one another to loving good deeds, that's not speaking truth and love, it's not what we've been called to. Um, and he, he really uses the language of making these things a habit, doing them, walking in obedience, knowing that we need to, or else the sediment's going to settle. That's our natural disposition. Even as new creations in Christ, the old man is just knocking at the door. Every morning when I wake up, I wake up sliding, having slid overnight somehow toward practical atheism. God Almighty, I have got to get in your word, and I have got to get on my knees, and I've got to get with other believers stir this stuff up. Um, it's what he's called us to do. And finally, in closing, um, he closes with this verse. He says, not neglecting, so let us consider how to store it up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. In other words, our habituating tendency, if we do nothing, is just going to be to drift apart and not make it a habit to gather together constantly to worship God, to spur one another on, to, to rub off those edges, to speak truth in love, to point each other to Jesus, to say, man, I'm going through some serious temptation right now, or I fell into this sin, or I'm struggling, I'm hurting, brother or sister, help. That's not going to be our habit, but make it your habit. That's what he's saying. You have it in you because of what Christ has done to arouse that. It's in you, now arouse it, and it's a group thing. Um, he says, so in light of that, don't neglect meeting together, as some have done, but encouraging one another. What? What does that imply? It implies that this is scary. You need courage. Be courageous because your tendency is going to be to fear in this life, to fear all the things that are coming at you. 
to fear the challenge that living as an alien, a sojourner in this world that God has put you right in the middle of, it's going to be scary. So encourage each other. It takes coming together and speaking courage into one another's life and pointing each other to Jesus. Um, encouraging one another, what? And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And I'll just close with this. You know, the day, it's almost certainly, it is, judgment day. It's the day of Christ's return. It's the day, the fact that Christ hasn't just come, he's coming again. He's coming again in power to make all things right, to vanquish evil and sin, and to bring his people to himself and all those that have rejected him. And rejecting him is knowing that he's come and then saying, I'm going to try to go to my own or I'll check that out later. No, God didn't come and wasn't crucified on a Roman cross and endure hell and become sin for you to say, eh, that's rejection. He has come to draw his own to himself and to, <clears throat> and to send all those that have rejected him to hell. It's painful for me to say, but if I don't say this to you all, my sheep that God has put under my charge, I would be doing you a disservice. It is the great divorce. It is the ultimate divide. And God desires that all should be saved and come to repentance, and he's provided a way for us to do that. And so living, well, could we be such a people that we could live in light of the day of Christ when he is coming to make all things right, to do away with evil and to draw his people to himself, um, such that people would not be able to make sense of our life unless they know, oh, they're living in light of what Jesus has done and the fact that he's coming again, of the fact that earth is going to look like heaven. He's bringing heaven down the next time he comes, and he's going to make all things new. Oh, now that the way that they live makes sense. As opposed to, oh yeah, I could see the way that Taylor's living. It just makes pretty much, it's just like us. Convicted. No, living in light of the fact that he is drawing near, that his day is drawing near. Living as stewards of him and his kingdom and what he's done, as opposed to owners. Um, as we gather together, as we encourage one another. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you um, for making us a gathering of your people, whom you've made family, whom you've adopted to your, um, into your family, Father. Um, I thank you for the chance to worship together on a regular basis, to share life together in the midst of our communities, to hold out the word of life, Jesus Christ, to them in the way that we live and in the way that we speak the gospel to them. Give us courage to do that. Help us to encourage one another, and to rejoice in who you are and what you've done in Jesus Christ. We love you so much.